0: Welcome to Down in Bloomington, a conversational podcast about the musical history of Bloomington, Indiana. Today's guest has authored two memoirs about his experience growing up in Bloomington, Indiana. Bird Birdeshaw is the author of All the Best Stories Start with a Bad Decision, and I Opened My Mouth to Vomit and All I Got Were Words. Bird sat down with us to discuss the punk rock tribe and the music scene in Bloomington, Indiana during the 1980s and 90s. Place yourself in Bloomington and place yourself in the local music scene back when you were young and kind of how that
1: evolved around okay you. i mean it's, it's it's spelled out in the first story of the book but uh so i was born in bloomington yeah. raised in bloomington and went through uh, the schools here and um uh, when i tell my children about it they're just schools like that it's like yeah we had to fucking fight with our fists All right other students yep. You know, a lot. (laughs) So uh, I kind of came up through middle school, uh, and and got kind of hooked into what my parents would have called the wrong crowd. But these were like uh, lower class, lower working class kids, Mm -hmm. and you know we listened to heavy metal. Uh, I think the biggest thing at the time was, um, you know, ACDC's Back in Black album come out a few years previous. the second um, drummer with the one arm Def yeah, Leppard yep, record, yep. record had come out and people were just oh, and I was all into that shit and Iron Maiden and, and you know just all that kind of metal that was coming through then and you know I was actually getting a little because the second ACDC record had come out uh, for those about to rock and I was like wow this sounds a whole lot like Back in Black mm-hmm. just a whole lot like Right. It. there was very Definite, and it was my first experience uh, figuring out that bands would find, you know, this blueprint. And once they found a successful blueprint, they stayed on it. Up until that time, ACDC was really bluesy, and they were kind of all over the place before their first singer died. So when that came out, I was like, yeah, that's a great record. And then the second one came out, I was like, wow, that's a lot like Black and Black. And then Def Leppard did it, and I was like, wow sounds a lot like you know, their previous record and, yeah. and I was like this was starting to happen and I was like well that's not what I want I, I, well I liked it when the bands explored and, you know I liked yeah. it when ACDC found a new sound right. and went all in on it and you know and I was like wow because that's so much different than Bon Scott and I thought they would continue doing that and they didn't continue doing that um, I still like ACDC right. I, still, I still love that band but um at the time i think i was looking for something else and um uh uh, it's in the first story but i got arrested with these guys uh for fucking around with pellet guns started out like we were going to prank people walking down the street and shoot each other we had these ketchup packages we got from mcdonald's we were going to explode them on our chest and fall down and we thought that shit would be funny well somehow that didn't happen, and one of the guys who was dressed like the cop and had the pellet gun decided to start fucking with, instead of pointing the gun at his buddies, he was pointing it at strangers. Oh, no. Yeah, so uh, it became a whole thing really quick. Police involved. Police were mean. involved. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, and it ended with me... You know, down on the corner uh, where Kilroy's is on Kirkwood, Kirkwood and Dunn, Mm -hmm. you know, for some dumbass reason, trying to get home, we heard all these sirens, and it was like, don't turn down Kirkwood, go up Dunn, and we'll get back to my friend Bill's house at the time, and uh, we see a cop way down on Indiana, sideways, he's like, turn on Dunn, and there's another cop. They had just pulled in and blocked all the streets, and then all of a sudden they were all around us, all pointing their guns, real guns right gonna you know blow us away and uh uh so that wasn't even the worst part the worst part was my dad picking me up because i had one of these old blue collar dads yeah. who was pretty heavy handed and you know and the first story is really hard for people to get through yeah we could talk about when i sent that to publishers yeah because you they always ask for the first hundred pages right which is probably the reason i was rejected from over 50 different publishing houses because they read that we're like this is not what we're after at all we weren't into a child abuse book right so uh so um i was from that moment on i was not allowed to hang out with those boys anymore right so i'm at school and i was my dad would do this thing where you would be if i had a bad report card i'd be grounded till the next report card which is like nine weeks yeah well i was this was like that except forever <laughs> forever indefinite yes you were in your room he went in there pulled out the tv the stereo uh he left my bookcases He got like, you so smart and read some books so yeah. that's what i did all summer long yeah. until the next school started up and then i was still in that um, but you know then i had other kids i could finally talk to and things yeah. like that and so there was this kid named tom and my who i'd known coming up through uh uh, middle school in my this was like sophomore year of high school when when all this happened and uh, you know Tom sat in front of me in English class and you know, I draw my folder flying V guitars and the, tried the to try to try to try to draw the exact way Kiss made their logo or yep. ACDC made it with the little diamond things at the bottom or you every know every notebook I had oh yeah just covered yep. with graffiti. And one night I had been listening to, um, you know, my mom, after a while, browbeat my father into letting me listen to my radio. If I put my headphones on, you know, the big headphones, kind of like what you're wearing right now. As long as he didn't have to hear the shit, he was fine. And um, so one late night, Q95 or one of those stations in Indianapolis, you know, when it got to a later hour, uh, they kind of let their DJs off the chain sometimes. Right. So, this DJ was playing all this glam rock stuff. You know, he's playing Bowie and the New York Dolls and uh, Iggy Pop and, and, and a bunch of stuff, Sweet and, and things like that. And so, you know, as I was listening, I was writing down these names on that folder. Yeah. And, you know, I'm in English class and me and Tom would banter all the time about music and metal and all this stuff. And he, he looks at the folder and he goes, Iggy Pop, Stooges. It's pretty punk rock, man. I'm like, really? It's punk rock? It didn't it sounded pretty rock and roll to me. And he's like, oh yeah, but and then you know, he's he's going on and on and he's like, Have you heard hardcore? I was like hardcore, like like the porn? So <laughs> I remember that George C. Scott had made that movie called Hardcore, which is about right. the porn industry in the 70s. He's like, No, man, hardcore punk. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. It sounded familiar. and he started naming off bands like Black Flag and things like that. And I was like, kinda sounds familiar. <clears throat> and I went back through uh, Hit Parader magazine, right? Which was like this rock and roll magazine. Uh, a couple nights later, because I was like, "Man, it, it just ate on me." Because he he was really up and up at this whole punk rock thing. How it was yeah. harder than metal. I was like, "It's not harder than Sabbath." It's like, "Oh yeah, it's harder than Sabbath and nastier than Sabbath." And you gotta listen to it. And so I was I was intrigued. And but the name Black Flag kept running through my mind I was like I'd seen that somewhere before mm-hmm. so I went through my hit paraders and I found this little article this guy had done and it's a really forward thinking article if you read it he's talking about heavy metal and and hardcore punk crossing over he's uh. like, and the end is something like uh, if you like ACDC and I know you do you're gonna be uh, really stoked about a band five years from now who combines the uh, hardcore mythos of uh, Heavy metal with the raw intensity of punk rock. Mark my words. And fuck yeah, then you know, it wasn't happened. too much later. Yeah, it happened. So uh, uh, started hanging out with Tom. was able to browbeat my mom into going over to his house to listen to this, this music. Yes, cause I'd never heard it. I didn't know where to get it. Uh, you know, the only time I got to a record store was with my parents when they'd go to the mall for whatever, go to Sears or something. I could stop at the disc jockey. I don't even remember this record store that was in. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And it was all Pat Benatar (laughs) and, you know,
0: Merle Haggard and
1: and just. Whatever was top four. Whatever was popular in those genres at that time. And there was nothing. I think there probably was a Blondie record, maybe. If I had dug deep enough and knew, there probably was a Sex Pistols record buried in there somewhere for Warner Brothers. I mean, they might have one copy, but. Uh, They certainly didn't have any Black Flag or Circle Jerks or Bad Brains or any of these bands that my friend was telling me about. So we go to his house, and he has Let Them Eat Jelly Beans and All's Quiet on the Western Front compilations. And he plays these for me, and it's one of those, I think everyone who's ever gotten attached to the punk rock movement or, you know, at least from that decade, had that moment where your brain just exploded. Yeah. And, and you said, "Oh my God, this is what I want to be involved with." And from then on, it was on. It was, you know, uh, first uh, slowly got out from underneath my parents' boot heel, and because uh, they were really happy I had new friends. Right. And these new friends were a little bit smarter, a little more intellectual. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd start talking about current events and. Uh, parents are like, who is this fucking A little kid? more well-read, a little more... A little stunning. more well-read, yeah. A little, you know, they they were, part, they were in band class. Mm-hmm. You know, they got A's on their report cards. And, you know, this, this was the kind of people my parents wanted me hanging out with right. until they met them. And then they were like, holy shit. But it was a little too late to back out at that point. It's <laughs> was like, what's this Mohawks and Spike and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. But, uh, um, so I managed to go to a Zero Boys concert for my first concert at this little club that these kids had taken over this old hippie named um ricky had rented a place above the salvation army which is now a, a parking garage on fourth fourth in college um, so if you imagine the second store of that parking garage all the way up against uh, the building behind it which was second story and all that stuff right and that's ricky's uh, that's where cantina. ricky's cantina was right. yeah and uh you know, I think he started with the idea it was going to be an all-ages club, and I think he was thinking blues and kind of the, the rock and roll that he knew. Right. But instead, all these little gnarly punk rockers got attached to it. And they did what you did back then if you wanted a band to come to town. They wrote to the bands. Yeah. Or they got a Maximum Rock and Roll, this magazine uh, that they would pick up at other hardcore shows around Indianapolis and stuff. And you'd flip it open, and you'd find the telephone number of one of the guys from one of those bands and you call them up and go hey if you're ever touring here's my number in indiana let me know and that and these kids booked an awful lot of shows just doing shit like that just writing to a a a guy in a magazine that they'd never met there's maybe one song they'd heard on a compilation record because it was still kind of kind of tough to get those records at that time there was um maybe two places that three places that had them Discount in had a little import section they were a little yep. shop up above uh just down from kilroy's oh, i don't know what's there next to the old noble roman yeah right. which is yeah. not there either right. so uh it's hard to s- explain where that is but uh there and then there was a little store in the back of there was a record store called roscoe's in the back of dunkirk square I think there's a falafel shop or something weird back there now Yeah, or there was I haven't been back there in a while um, and they had a little import section mm-hmm. and Ozarka up the hill which is like this multi ethnic Chinese Thai Korean Japanese kind of Asian fusion restaurant Yeah. that was a record store and you could you could go to any of these stores and you know you just have to twirl through the records you know you know my son goes I was talking about him getting the the uh, Velvet Underground yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he just went online, found the best one he could find, and ordered it. I was like, dude, you don't understand how we had to find music back then. We had to just work for it, work for it. And I was like, even when we didn't have the money, we were cruising through those record stacks. Did you ever buy something because
0: you thought, oh, this is going to be so good, and then you brought it home, and you're like, oh, this is garbage.
1: Probably. um, Oh, I know one of them was... uh, it was Discharge. It was the Discharge that band from England. Yeah, like I heard their first hardcore English record. And I was holy shit, this is great. And then I saw another Discharge record, and it was just some kind of crazy, like operatic metal they were trying to do, but they were so bad at it. I still have the record. It was just a <laughs> terrible record, just terrible. And then there's records I, I I saw that looked so bad that I knew they had to be good. Um Like, uh, I've got a record at home, and and again, my son's amazed by this. Uh, There's this guy named Elvis Hitler, who at the time, do you remember Elvis Hitler? It's kind of a rockabilly punk sound, and I guess he didn't have money to print the first run of his records, like the the, the covers. The sleeves. So he got mailing sleeves and just slapped a sticker on them. And sent those to record stores. So that's what I got. I've got this awesome. mail, this cardboard mailing sleeve. It's like an inch thick, mm-hmm. with that record in. And I, and when I listened to that, record, I was like, I knew it. I knew this record was going to be awesome, mm-hmm. just because how bad and how poorly. But how you could also tell that he was determined to get this record out. You know, he ran out of money, couldn't print sleeves off. So let's go down to the. The post yeah. office and buy cardboards. <laughs> Send those out to record stores. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's how I got into it. And then you just, I dived in. And through high school, it was nothing. The remainder of high school was nothing but, you know, hardcore punk rock and, and bands like that.
0: In your book, you talk about finding your tribe. Mm-hmm. You, you, you've published two volumes of memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So the first one is all the best stories start with a bad
1: decision. Yes. And the second one
0: is, called, is titled. I
1: opened my mouth to vomit, but all I got were words, which was a piece of graffiti, yeah, uh, up on the top top end of Kirkwood in an alley. Yeah, and I think I think the first story is about. It's called Finding My Tribe, and it was those those kids, um, and and it grew. The tribe grew as more people came in. Uh, the music was the impetus, it was the, the engine in the bus, mm-hmm. but there was so much, there was an artistic bent to it. There was uh, the fact that we were all oddballs and square pegs and misfits mm-hmm. and nerds and, and just sometimes disagreeable little rabble rousers. Mm-hmm. And we all gelled together around this music. Um, and we also lived in a time where uh, expressing yourself the way we did with leather jackets or mohawks or, or, or pierced noses, different colored hair, stuff you see the kid who's serving you lattes at Starbucks or checking you out at Target, or you know working in a grocery store. Heck, you, now you see old ladies older than me with with blue hair. Yeah,
0: and it's it, not the blue rinse stuff. No, that. no,
1: it's not the it's <laughs> not the mistake. You know where that you talk about blue-haired old lady. That is a bright blue hair. Um, it was so revolutionary and, and so different at the time that everyone hated us. every every single person, uh, from all the other little subgenres of groups in high school, the jocks, the nerds, the rednecks, especially, that was our our biggest foe around town was the country kids, just couldn't stand us. Just it was war going to school, and I don't think people understand how dangerous it was simply to walk down the street with a leather jacket with a couple buttons on it and a weird haircut, you were just a target. And um, there was this camaraderie because of that, because everyone else, the frat boys at the university, the police didn't like us, uh, teachers didn't like us. You know, I I was stood up in, in a psychology class And used a couple times uh, as examples of like antisocial behavior. She's like, "Stand up, Mr. Vertisha. He's a good example of antisocial behavior." It's like, "You bitch, really? You know?" And but you know, I also had teachers that got it. I had old hippie art teachers that were like, "Yeah, we did almost the same thing. We did a little different. We were a little more mellow about it." But I understand what you're doing, and you know, very and could be supported in that way. But there were certainly the teachers, you know, the you know, old military guys that were just like, hmm. We had a really um, cohesive group, and it grew as we got out of high school and kids got into college. And then more kids, and this was the great part about this, and what made Bloomington kind of unique, was that other kids came from other parts of the country. And, these, and a lot of those kids were just like us. They had found the, the punk rock scene or, or alternative music at the time. Uh, whatever I've been post-punk or just avant-garde weird stuff and and they brought all that with them and they found us and We all found each other. So there was no uh, there was no militis- militarization of, of the punk rock aesthetic There was no uh, This is the way you have to do it Which sometimes didn't work for me if I went out of town there were uniforms that they thought you should wear uh, in the book uh in the second book, I talk about uh, all the different places I went and saw shows and things. And one was uh, Indianapolis, and I had friends in Indianapolis. But it was a big scene up there, and it was they had a hardcore aesthetic that they stuck to. And when this long-haired kid from Bloomington came, because I kept my hair long, the reason being, my dad loved short hair. Well, I didn't want to do anything he loved. I wanted to do the exact opposite of what he liked, so I kept long hair. And, you know, one of the few long-haired punks early in that, in that scene. No. And, um, but in Bloomington, it was, you know, whatever you could come up with. Right. Creativity was the key. You, you could just wear a skate t-shirt and some shorts, and we didn't care. Yeah. And then there were other people that went way, you know, and I was one of those who so get a little flashier, or, or yeah. just kind of explore the, what you could do with clothing or, or stuff like that. And tattoos, tattoos are huge now. When did you start
0: noticing uh, a local music scene happening? When did you start noticing, hey, these bands are from here. This music is from Oh,
1: immediately. I mean, because my friend's bands were opening for those bands that they called on the phone. Um, Some of the earliest punk rock bands. uh, One is playing, I brought you a flyer Um, on the 31st at the Blockhouse. This band called Yellow Rain.
0: That's uh, those are some of the members of uh, Pitbulls on Crack, or
1: uh, they're members from a lot of different bands. Yeah, yeah Pitbulls on Crack and uh, Moto X and um, just a bunch of different bands. Yeah. you know Ross Danielson and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Greg Phillips have played in a bunch. Of, uh, Dan Fear, Steven as the drummer, has played in a bunch of different bands. Um, but they were they were a band in like 1983, and I saw them at Ricky's Cantina. But come to find out, yellow rain was like this uh, uh, thing that the Reagan administration made up to explain uh, like chemical warfare in Southeast Asia and, and, and stuff like that. So it's a very complicated history, but very topical for 1983 and no other time. That's a good example, though, so, of kind of the
0: the kids that that you were hanging out with being more informed yeah, than a lot and of and just being
1: kids, engaged. You know, yeah, you know, I. Thought nothing about politics until I got into punk rock, and then you start, and that stuff rubs off on you. I mean, everything, everything about the the people I grew up with, uh, informed me as I was growing up. in In the years I needed it to do that, right. um, so it was able to stick. Um, you know, my parents, like I said, loved it because my grades started going up because it wasn't cool to be dumb right. anymore. It kind of pushed you towards. The more intellectual side and, and the political side, and thinking about your world and where your place in it, and uh, and creativity, yeah. you know, and what was possible with music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not a musician, but uh, but just exploring all of that stuff was.
0: Other than Ricky's Cantina, where else were you able to see shows back then?
1: So yeah, there's kind of a timeline, and it you know it's it's the all ages thing kind of dried up. Um, so Ricky's Cantina happened Then it closed Parts of the Monroe County History Museum Right Just the old the library old library And we had shows there We saw Sam Hain Which Just some epic stories From that guy Right Glenn Danzig Yeah What a tool Another big thing is Was basement shows And street dances uh, Eric White Was the master Of getting street dances This is the third time Eric White has been mentioned In one of these podcasts Oh yeah He was seminal. Mm-hmm purveyor of music and and promoter of music in Bloomington. Uh, You cannot talk about Bloomington music without him. You just can't. At least those early years uh, all the way up through into the 90s. So, uh, he's semi-retired right now. Kind of off the grid for a little bit. But Eric had told me one time when I had Rockets, my pizza place, Rockets Pizzeria, which I owned from 90 to 96. Which we'll talk about. Oh, okay. For sure. when it first opened I wanted to go have a street dance in this this vacant lot next to it mm-hmm. and I didn't know how he fucking did it but, so I went in front of the city council and they just eviscerated me they just like just shut it down so hard so fast they did not give a fuck they did even want why was this guy taking up our time and I was like god damn how does Eric do it and I found out he would go to the street department and he just needed to convince one guy Just needed to convince, he built this relationship with one guy, said, Hey, next Saturday, I'd like to shut the, or, you know, a few Saturdays from now, I'd like to have the block between Lincoln and Washington on 6th Street shut down and have a little show. Is that cool? And they'd be like, Yeah, sure, no problem. And they'd shut it down, and Eric would then work on where he was getting the electricity from and, you know, the generators and all that stuff. I had no idea until I wrote my books and, and I went and asked him. He told me this. So I was like, God damn it, no wonder. <laughs> no wonder you couldn't get the no <laughs> I went you know, I went in front, I don't know how many I forget how many people are on the city council, six, eight, something like that, but yeah, they were not happy. Not happy. They did not care who this Cretan was. And so, so there were
0: street so. dances and those <laughs> were mostly in that area around the library. At that time. Yeah, he
1: had them all He kind of had them all over. Sometimes he'd have them on Kirkwood. So most of the time, he was on side streets. Yeah. I think probably because they were the easiest. A yeah. couple times, People's Park. A couple times, Third Street Park. A um, uh, couple times up near the square, he had some. He, I think, he even had them on sidewalks a couple times, like right on Main Drag at Walnut Street. Uh, it might have been like on Sixth between Walnut and Washington or something. Yeah. But um, he, he just would get these and. They were great summertime events. I mean, you just looked forward to them. Um, when I got to working uh, at the Italian Villa, I missed a lot more than I got to see. But that went on to booking bands at places like, uh, once we started getting older, like Second Story, Bluebird, Jake's. Um, I think in between we had a little... little Tiny places would start up and close down real quick. We had very briefly this place called 33 Steps. I went to one show there. Yeah, I think I maybe went to two. And one of them I was just vomiting profusely at because a friend of mine gave me a bottle of cough syrup to drink. We had uh, an older, uh, wiser uh, music aficionado named Steve Millen who was kind of like a big brother to all of us. You know, this was a guy who was 10 years, over 10 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And um, also, uh, you know, one of the first experiences I had uh, befriending an openly gay man, Mm -hmm. which uh, up until that point, you know, you snicker or or, high school kind of, and then you find out this guy you you know and love is uh, a gay man and you're like, oh, that's how that shit evaporates, you Mm -hmm. know? Yep. Now that kind of like homophobia, high school stuff just leaves your body because yep. this is my friend. Yeah, Steve. Steve liked to get high on cough syrup, and he had a, a zine called uh, Tussin Up, seminal in keeping us entertained.
0: Yeah, I know there was Tussin Up, and there was uh, Gulcher,
1: um had a zine. Mm-hmm. Were there other kind it, of? Oh, there was tons. Uh, I got a list of a bunch of them in the in the. Beginning of the uh, second book. Mickey's Pink Butthole was another one. This was a product of this group of women that were called, lived in a house we used to name our party houses. So uh, they lived in a house called the House of Raging Women. And um, their their zine was um, more feminist, Mm -hmm. you know, poke you in the eye kind of centered. And just hilarious. If you can find old copies of it, just hilarious. Um, There was a guy named uh, Seth, also affectionately known as Mickey Malice, put out a bunch of different kinds of... He had Mickey Malice magazine. My favorite of his was Satan's Surreal Spaghetti Supper, which was a zine that was printed on black paper. Black ink on black paper. You had to go out in the sunlight and hold it at an angle to fucking read this thing, it, you know. It was just fantastic. But yeah, just tons of them. osmosis and diffusion. Uh, my friend Zach had one called a no-seeing boredom zine. Scene. So there were The Natives, uh, it was an early hardcore band. Moto X was an early, early punk band. I wouldn't call them hardcore, but they were, they were definitely a, a punk rock band. Um, I miss The Panics. They were very early, like the Gizmos were, they were kind of, the Gizmos of the Panics were kind of predated 1983 when I dropped into the scene. Um, but, you know, they were talked about. And they were talked about with reverence all the way back then. Mm-hmm. The Gizmos, the Panics. Right. You know, those, so, but those bands would go on, uh, especially the guys from the Panics and, and form the Swamp Rats and uh, later the Walking Ruins, which became Bloomington's, premier yeah. punk rock band. Right. You know, those guys were troubadours. They were they played everywhere. I don't think uh, they ever said no to a gig. I do not think they ever said no.
0: They were always ready to play.
1: I think they were. I think anyone said, hey, we're having a party tonight. Can you play? Yes, we'll be there. Yeah. And then they showed up. Uh, hey, I need someone to be on the bottom of this bill. Can you do it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, the Blood Farmers were a band. Uh, that was around Killing Children, was kind of an import from Columbus. So, and you can still find those records out there. Uh, them and Killing, Ch- Killing Children and Blood Farmers both made little seven inch yeah. records. Um, you know, and then later, again, all these bands morphed into other bands as the members mixed it up and moved around. Um, Pitbulls on Crack uh, was one of my favorite bands. Um, and those guys went on to be like trailside killers joyride yeah you know especially when we hit 21 and hit the clubs then they were mixing it up um, Phil's band Virginia scrapings they played my 21st birthday party you found a way to
0: create a, a business that was music adjacent
1: yes, um, yes.
0: and so uh, when I when I first moved down here to Bloomington, um, several of my roommates and several of the people that I knew worked for you at Johnny Rockets yeah. uh, Pizza um, in varying capacities, most of them for a pretty short period of time. But uh, Johnny Rockets had the best jukebox in Indiana for a while. We did. And the the walls were covered with memorabilia from... I mean, I'm guessing it was any band that played at the Bluebird in Bloomington, uh, ended up yeah.
1: trading some
0: sort of memorabilia with you for pizza. Would yes.
1: Guys- yeah, and, and for the record, we changed our name to uh, Rocket's Famous Pizza yeah. very shortly after opening when it became uh, apparent that uh, my business partner had lifted the name from a, a, a hamburger franchise out west, which uh, I met a few years ago. I finally saw that hamburger franchise. Um. But uh, yeah, we got to cease and desist. (laughs) So we had to scrap the Johnny from the name. But and you know the the uh, menu would open up, and there was this big story we had in the middle Mm. of the menu uh, about Johnny Rocket and and this kind of mythos of this guy who formed a pizza place and was a former musician who knew all these bands. You know, we name and this is I don't know how this shit never got us in trouble, but we know we had bands named the Madonna and the Johnny Cash and, and. the fab four and I guess we were never big enough for to reach those ears so we never got those cease and desist orders that started I worked at this place called the Italian Villa there was very few places in Bloomington that would hire freaks you know people with earrings and tattoos or different color hair leather jackets or whatever little scrappy little punk rockers very few places would do it the places that would most commonly were restaurants Mm -hmm. Because they could put you in the back end of the restaurant. Right. You could wash dishes and you could cook, yeah, and no one had to see you. And they could still, you know, pay you minimum wage, which was like three thirteen an hour, uh, back in in the early '80s. And uh, you know, it was a good deal. Yeah. And and the guy who did this is his name is Lou in the book. I'm gonna try not to mention his real name. Um, I always thought it was genius. You hire these freaks give them a job, treat them like people, uh, put your trust in your restaurant in their hands, mm-hmm. and he, he garnered some loyalty doing that. You know, okay. he, he was a bit of a... Uh, he could be a little off the rails sometimes and had a temper like a, a junkyard dog. There, there
0: were a lot of people in the Bloomington music scene that worked at Leslie's Italian Villa, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, uh, I know... Uh, when I when I interviewed Deke Hager he yeah. talked about I met Deke there yeah and uh,
1: who were some of the other folks from the local music uh, there's Deke uh, there was John the lead singer of Walking Ruins yeah Tom Matthew uh, with the drummer for uh, Go Mango he worked there um, there was this guy named Mel Mel Tally who was in this band called Toxin, which was kind of like the thrash metal band of Bloomington for the long time. And, and Mel was just kind of like this, just this heavy metal pirate. He was just kind of sleazy and and, and dirty and, and ri- ass length, long hair. So the owner of the Italian villa, Lou, <laughs> I keep calling him Lou, uh, approached me when I was the manager. I had built myself up from dishwasher all the way to the manager and I was managing his restaurant. Uh, kitchen manager I ran the lines when the busiest nights of the week and uh, did it quite successfully and he approached me one night because he had been out on the sidewalk in front of the restaurant looking up the street and there's this giant line forming at the hammerheads uh, were playing and just a line all the way down to the entrance of his restaurant mm-hmm. and it's a slow night and he's just getting pissed looking at it mm-hmm. and you know because none of these kids are coming in to eat and he's like yeah they could come in here and eat and then go to the mm-hmm. just standing out here in the cold and then uh, this is before food trucks but there was a couple guys that had hot dog carts Yeah, they drive around I forget on bicycles or they tow them with their car yeah. and they park them one of these motherfuckers pulls up starts selling hot dogs and then just Frank's just his, his brain is blowing up he's yeah. like that's all my money, sitting in those jeans of those college kids. But none of those kids were going to Leslie's. was too nice for them to go to. But uh, So he cooked up this idea of, uh, he read an article about the Hard Rock Cafe. He wants something easy and quick that would make money. Yeah. He's like, what's the easiest thing, that's cheapest, that makes the most money besides spaghetti? Pizza. You know, it's dough and cheese and a little sauce and throw some ingredients on it. Yeah. And so he thought, you know, look at the bluebird model of music these kids lining up for music I had a pizza place and then uh, a space up on the corner right next to the bluebird opened up mm-hmm. boom he was on it, he rented the space called me in his office one night and says hey I want you in on this, I need I need a partner, and I had no money I spent all my money on booze and coke um, I don't got no money, well borrow some money from your parents I need you in on this so, you know, I don't know how I sold it to my parents. I don't know how they bought it, but they gave me a, a couple thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And I bought into this restaurant and uh, started putting it in action. And one of the early things was, you know, we need memorabilia uh, to make this kind of a rock and roll place. So he goes down to Ace pawn shop and he <clears throat> buys all these funky instruments. sousaphone, trombone. Uh, An accordion. I'm like, those aren't really rock and roll. What are we doing here? I was like, how about these guitars? And he buys these two really cheesy looking axes. Yeah. And we get those. And uh, then we start putting the restaurant together. He convinces my dad as, as part of helping me out to build a little bar along the side. And we, you know, we painted it and we. And then we found a place up in Indianapolis to give us a jukebox. I got a list. I got a list from John Barge. I got a list probably from Deke, from all the people I worked with. I was like, this is what I want. I want 50s through 70s rock and roll in this mm-hmm. thing. I don't want anything new. I just made this huge list that I gave to the, the jukebox company. And I got about a third of yeah. what I wanted, and then they filled it with shit. Um, so then I started going to record shows later on. And doing what I do with records just trolling through all these 45s and I'd start replacing what I wanted. Uh, I don't think I had anything, I don't think any of our friends made yeah. the big hole right. 45s mm-hmm. uh, at that time. I think CDs were really coming in in the 90s so everything was on CD it was new mm-hmm. and it was crisp and it was this great sound. And What year did you, Rockets open up? Rockets opened up in 1990. I sold it in 1996. Yeah. I don't know, who, who was your roommates at the time? So, uh, Matt Schaefer worked ah, for you. Yeah, yeah Matt, yeah. Um, Patrick Kelly. Pat, the Viking, I see him yeah. all over town. Um, Angela Mitchell. Too. Matt Schaefer's girlfriends hated me. <laughs> they were always calling on the fucking phone. Yeah. You know, there was no cell phones back There, there were cell phones, but they were these giant monstrosities right. They cost a shitload of money. Yeah. And college kids couldn't afford them. So, uh, but, oh, they were always calling, can I talk to Matt? Yeah. <laughs> No, you can't fucking talk to Matt, he's working. Please, it's an emergency. What kind of emergency is it? Get out of here. Call him later after work. <laughs> you know, and then they would read him the Rad act. He's like, dude, you gotta go a little lighter on my girlfriends.
0: And,
1: Man, I'm running a business here, what the fuck? But you know, uh, it was it was a great experience. Uh, yeah, he had tons of little kids. Uh, Partway through uh, Rockets, uh, veganism, which had always been kind of around just kind of blossomed right it was just kind of blocked veganism and straight edge just there was a contingent of kids that came yeah. in the 90s that were really the straight edge vegans and uh really into the hardcore punk rock scene and, mm-hmm. and uh a lot of them were underage so they were doing shows in their houses and yeah. they would bring their bands that played on a wednesday night yeah so on a slow wednesday night all of a sudden i'd fill up with all these vegan kids so i hired a bunch of them and you know, then they schooled me on what was good, you know. And then I wound up hiring, which presented its own problems sometimes. But, like, dude, you got to make the pepperoni pizzas. I know it's a dead animal, and you're completely opposed to this, but you got to make it. Yeah. You can't just make the wait for the vegetarian pizzas to come. Just, no animal products whatsoever. But my leather jacket. Fuck that leather jacket. No, I like my leather jacket. <laughs> Fuck you. He's like, what about the glue in your shoes? Isn't that made out of horses? 23 like is pretty young to be. Yeah, 23, it was. 23 right? it was. Uh, uh, it's also, uh, I got clean a year later yeah. uh, and became a straight edge kind of myself because it was impossible <laughs> to keep partying like I was partying and be a responsible restaurant owner. <laughs> Let, let's talk a little bit about the books. What made you decide to put all this down in print? Um,. So I had been thinking about it a long, I mean, when I was working at Leslie's, we would joke around, like, wouldn't this place be a great movie? Mm-hmm. And we'd all think about who, who would be our character, who, right. what actor would play us, you know, yeah. Sean Penn or, or, or whoever the young actors were at the time. But, so, I always had it in the back of my mind that these weird little adventures I went on and these things that happened uh, growing up were unique. They were unique time and place and... Uh, A lot of times, at least in the music part of it, it was skipped over whenever you'd see documentaries. Mm -hmm. And it was Sex Pistols, Nirvana. I was Mm -hmm. like, motherfuckers. So the way I started writing it down was, uh, you know, I sold rockets, moved on, uh, started a family. I was working at this place and they wanted to send me, like to send you at Ivy Tech, how do you feel about that? I was like, sure, I'll do it, what the hell? What could it hurt, you know? So I went to Ivy Tech. Uh, I I took all these courses. One of the things I took, two things I took was a speech class and a writing class. As the course went on, I wrote these stories. Uh, One of them, the last story in the first book, Uh, it's called The Fabulous Accident, about my friend Rob, who was this rock and roll maniac. Um, Just because he was such a nut, He, he didn't even have to provide entertainment. All you needed to do was provide Robbie Mullet. And sit back and let it happen. It, he was such a uh, fun guy to be around. Um, I can't imagine him in his 40s. So I wrote that story. It was more of a shortened version of it. Uh, and I shared it with this group, all the kids in the class. You know, I, I think I was in my 30s, late 30s at the time. And all these kids were just approaching 20, 21, maybe. And they just lost their mind. They're like, what? you lived like this, this happened in Bloomington. Oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. And I was like, well, you know, it had its up and downs. And, and uh, it was the first time I realized that, you know, that stuff that I found just completely hilarious and fun would be interesting to other people. Right. So, uh, and then I wrote another one. The second one I wrote was, uh, my experience with a girlfriend who had died my friend, Mike's sister. And that's in the second book. Um, And that was a lot shorter than it is in there. But uh, uh, so that kind of started it. And then I would share these stories. You published your first book about five years ago? Four or five years 2019. Okay. This one was in 2019. uh, Right before the pandemic hit. Like Mm -hmm. kind of the end of 2019, I published this. Um, And then I published the other one right in the middle of the pandemic. We were all at home. And uh, I did not do much advertising. All my friends bought it. Uh, I sold a bunch online. Um, I sold a bunch at a couple shows I've done. Um, What was the process of trying to get these memoirs published? Oh, well, I I asked my friends. I got people who have published stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of them for universities that they work for and stuff. but, But they gave me a kind of outline on what you do and then I went online and I, I looked about you know how other people do it and it found all of these I tried to stay away from major publishing houses and go to these these small publishing houses and uh, usually it's the same kind of thing like, send us the first hundred pages mm-hmm. uh, synopsis of what the book's about who's what the audience is da 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 you know mm-hmm. just, um, how they were going to market this book why you think it's attractive to people and uh, I just got rejected time after time. And at first, it was all in one thing. So it was 800 pages. Right. This is two books now. Yeah. But the first time, this guy from England's guy, dude, I cannot publish an 800 page book. Are you out of your goddamn mind? And I, and I put that out there, this email I got, and people are like, yeah, you need to break those up. Right. You need to break that all up. And, and so, what was the <clears throat> dividing line between the two stories? Um. The, well, the, the first book I wanted to be uh, stories where I was just things were going wrong and, and the second one has uh, it has the story about my rock and roll experience all around the Midwest where I've gone to see rock shows um, and all the different bars around Bloomington and, and the people and the bands and the little stories like that and uh, the second two stories in that book are about the girlfriend that died uh, one is kind of a third person while I'm processing it and trying to live a normal life and the other one is when the event happened and it's it's very intense uh, and then th- the last part of that is all the rocket stuff and then growing up and then you know what happened beyond that and, but the first book was just all of the mishap kind of stuff that led to either uh, you know experiences where you, you came out better at the end all the best stories start with a bad decision each one of these stories There's at least one bad decision. And sometimes they expose my hypocrisy growing up. And, you know, I've got one where uh, I'm incensed that this girl had given me the clap.
0: Yeah.
1: And they been cheating on me with all these, well, at least I thought she was cheating on me. You know, uh, and uh, how dare she kind of thing. And then later on, I start macking on Robbie's girlfriend in another story. So I'm doing the exact same fucking thing, but I wanted to expose the bits of hypocrisy and the fine lines between uh, you know when it happens to you as opposed to when you do it to someone else right. perspective is a neat thing and I was very careful in the first book mm-hmm. to uh, make sure and say these are my versions of events mm-hmm. these are almost true stories yeah uh, because in some of them I combine little bitty stories together right. like uh, nominal epiphenomenal the overarching arching part of that is me losing my bicycle and trying to find it right. one night when I'm really drunk. But in between it, there's lots of these little events that happen, you know, like beating up the Nazis on Kirkwood and, and parties, and, and you know, f- trying to get stabbed at one of the parties. And um, so I haven't got too much pushback. People are like, "Yeah, you know, that's not the way it happened." And I'm like, "Okay, I'm not changing it." You know. Right. So, uh, are th- are there any particular stories that you would like to share? Glenn Danzig had formed San Haynes sometime after the legendary East Coast band The Misfits broke up. He was the voice of the band, kind of a cross between Elvis and Jim Morrison and Vox, singing songs straight out of the Alice Cooper playbook. They were a little edgier, with easy hooks and a sing-along quality that you couldn't resist. They took metal and the panache of Kiss and layered it with the Saturday Night Horror Show flavor and a big dash of punk rock snark when they delivered it to our teenage brains with all the ghoul-driven virility of a big band like Motley Crue, and it was hard not to like them. They came to our little space and delivered their brand of punk rock with a hard and earnest intent, and we loved them for it. What they loved about Bloomington, however, wasn't our enthusiasm or our fan-driven knowledge of their songs, and it certainly wasn't the pay they got for playing to a hundred kids in a little dive of a space in a college town in the middle of the country. No, what they liked about Bloomington were our girls. Granted, the female punk rock population of Bloomington were, and are, some of the most beautiful women on the planet. More importantly, unlike a lot of other punk rock scenes around the country, there were a lot of girls in ours. In Bloomington, punk rock was not a boys club. Sam Hain acted like, and in some respects were treated like, celebrities. There was a swagger in their walk and no small amount of pretension around them. And although most of the girls in our tribe didn't cater to the notion of entitled renown, some of them were clearly starstruck. There was one girl who only hung around us when they were in town. The girl's name was Sonia. Not to be confused with my wife, Sonia, just so we're clear. And to hear her tell it, she was a professional groupie. Now, this was high school, and this girl just appeared one day, an import from Texas, trying to regale all the punk rockers with their ability to get backstage and get with the band, whatever band was playing. She had a laundry list of minor celebrities she had slept with and took pride in bragging about it to us. The more she talked, the more we looked at each other with doubt and disgust in her eyes. Needless to say, we were not impressed. The night of the first show at Ricky's Cantina, she came with her very clean, very new punk rock accessories and ornaments on display. For lower- and middle-class kids with second-hand clothes, Beat-up leather jackets, her Gucci cheek, very ostentatious and off. Her Gucci cheek was very off, ostentatious and off-putting. Nobody outright belittled her fashionable version of punk rock, but we weren't wowed by it by any means. There certainly wasn't a crowd of people talking or in any meaningful way interacting with her, in a manner that was sad, but kind of warranted. We shunned her. To Sam Hain, though, she was a beacon of teenage lust. They knew immediately what her deal was and welcomed her into the back of their panel truck. Later that night, she was seen at an after-event party with two members of the band making out, first near the cars outside and then later by people in the basement. The house we were partying in was called Harold and Alice. and When invited to come along, the band graciously accepted. I ran into Erie Vaughn and Glenn Danzig outside the house. Now, being 17 and eager to show them how cool I was, I offered to get them a beer. "'No, thank you. Seen that little red-headed girl?' Eerie asked. "'Uh, no, Mr. Creepy Man,' I thought to myself. "'Can I get you a beer, Glenn?' "'I don't drink beer, man. Only red wine.' He held up a big bottle. It was large and green and had a cork in it, which he pulled out with his teeth. "'Uh, why?' I asked. Makes your blood thick,' he said matter-of-factly. "'Oh,' I said like I knew what the hell he was talking about. "'Yeah, man, you need thick blood.' "'I do? Of course. You want some?' He held the bottle up. Sure, I reached for it. No, 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 I'll pour it in. I don't want your lips on my bottle. Open up. So, ah, I said, like I was at the doctor. There, thick blood, he said, pouring a, my mouth full of wine. I swallowed and said thanks. Later on, I would hold out a cup for some more, which he filled up a quarter of the way before telling me to get lost. My wine drinking experience with Glindanzig Danzig would last all of two minutes. I'm not sure why you want thick blood quick search on the internet tells me that's not a good thing to have. <laughs> Another thing that happened that night at h and is also something that everyone remembers the most about Glenn Danzig and his time in Bloomington, although depending on who you talk to, the story is slightly different. I've heard at least two versions in addition to my own, and that is the incident with the beer. In the early 80s in Bloomington, Indiana, beer was not yet a mainstain of our party focus. We were more concerned with just having fun Beer was a way to get there But it hadn't become the main ingredient yet Half the time we were content just to throw it at each other Than we were to actually drink the stuff We found it funny that a 16 year old would have to return home Smelling like a brewery And try to explain it to their unbelieving parents That they weren't drunk And that one of their friends had just thrown beer on them We thought it was funny as hell That is an excuse that is only going to work once If at all Beer fights were common at parties around this time, more so than actually getting wasted. So this is, was the environment Sam Haynes stepped into that night. More specifically, Glenn Danzig stepped into. Glenn was doing on the porch at Harold House, drinking wine and holding court like some kind of punk rock emperor, trying to impress the peasantry with his presence, when my friend Kate came up behind him and poured a cup of beer over his head. I know why she did it, and the people on the porch I'm pretty sure knew why she did it, but poor Glenn Danzig was clueless. To him, this was an unwarranted assault. Without even pausing to ask why someone would do this, he spun around and punched her in the stomach. Kate fell to the porch as the air was pushed violently out of her lungs. Glenn stood about her with his fist clenched, this was the moment I walked out the front door. What is going on? I asked Brat who was watching from a ragged barstool next to the door. I had no idea Glenn Danzig had punched her. Oh, Kate just poured on Glenn Danzig, poured a beer on Glenn Danzig's head, he chuckled. You stupid bitch, I'll kick your ass. I'm Glenn Danzig, nobody fucking does that to me. Who the fuck do you think you are? And there was probably more outrage of a similar nuance, but I was paying more attention to Kate, whose face had gone from surprisingly alarmed to very much amused. Even though she was gasping for air, there was a huge grin on her face. After a little more verbiage, he stood up, turned back to the people he was talking to, and turned his back on Kate. The people on the porch were looking at him in wide-eyed disbelief, as he explained that actions have consequences and you get what you deserve, before going back into his previous discussion about the occult or whatever the fuck it was he was talking about. Kate picked herself up off the floor, looked around. Seeing what she needed, she grabbed an almost empty beer can out of the nearest kid's hand and dumped its contents on Glenn Danzig's head. Again, Glenn visibly tensed up, shook his head, muttered a curse, and no more punches were thrown. Kate was content to get the last word. It has been a pleasure
0: to talk to you and hear these stories. Your efforts to collect the, the memories were partially inspiring to me to want to do this
1: podcast. Oh, great, and great. And probably should mention that uh, the Monroe County Historical Museum, where some of these shows took place, including two from Danzig. Uh, is now collecting actively collecting our memorabilia from that time and place flyers, zines uh, records if we have them to give um, and things like that and they plan on in 2024 having an exhibit of the Bloomington underground and, and not so underground music scene oh, that's- so I would encourage anyone who has that stuff and it was sitting like it was a sitting in my house in a big old trunk in the basement gathering mold, gathering dust, uh, take it over to the Monroe County Museum, tell them what it is, and donate it. They've got two of my books. They've got all of my flyers. Any of the zines I still have, they have those. And they would love some more. And I think it's important to document what went on in Bloomington. We were a little cog in a bigger machine. But it was was important to us. And I think it was important to the county. Uh, So when you see that kid at Starbucks with the uh, blue mohawk, yeah. And the tattoos and the pierced nose. And you go, hey, we've been to the Monroe County Historical Museum. See where all this started? It's, it, it'll be there for them. Well, thanks again. Yeah, maybe really you can make that. it to the show. I, I, I will be a, reading at that... Uh, you will be reading at it? Yeah, at oh. the beginning of it. So. Nice.